Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And then if you'll look on the back of your worship guide, you'll see several passages. Uh, we're going to hit a few of those today. If you're one that likes to chase along and follow, then I'm going to give you the list of the ones that I'm going to read. And then if you're not, you can just sit and listen and I'll read it to you. So. That sounds like everybody's mostly to 2 Thessalonians. So we're also going to be looking at that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We're going to be looking at Romans 8, the 28 through 38. We'll be looking at John 6, 3, uh, 37 through 44. And John 15, 9 to 25. The second Peter passage. And then the Acts passage. We're going to look at all of those today. So if you want to follow along, uh, the reason all these are here is because, as you know, I, lo I love the Bible. Uh, and I love for the Bible to explain the Bible. And so we're talking about a topic today that is somewhat contentious. And so I just wanted to show you from Scripture what's there. And then you know, maybe we can have a conversation about it later if you like. Uh, but... Here we are at the tail end of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. In the first part of the chapter, uh, we saw where Paul spent time uh, assuming, uh, I'm sorry, assuring the Thessalonian church that they had not missed the second coming of Christ or the rapture of the church. Now, this was a concern that they had. If you're new to these concepts, uh, for the second coming of Christ, the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back from heaven and he's going to set things right here on earth and there will be uh, judgment. In the Gospels, we see that Christ died for our sins. He rises from the grave three days later, which means that the atoning sacrifice that he performed on the cross was accepted by God. So he came back to life, showing that he had conquered sin and death. Uh, and in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that uh, Jesus appeared to the disciples for a period of 40 days. And during that time, he was explaining to them the things of the kingdom uh, and also convincing everyone that it was really him, because, I mean, you know, he was dead. And so uh, in verse 9, we see in chapter 1 that Luke tells us uh, Jesus ascended back into heaven. And so all the guys are up, sitting there watching him float back into the heavens. Uh, and they're staring there, and an angel shows up, and he says, that's the same way. You've got work to do. Get to work. He's going to come back in the same manner. Uh, and then... We're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when Christ returns, the church will be gathered to Jesus in the sky. Uh, Paul tells us there that the dead in Christ will go first. And so it appears that the resurrection of the dead will happen around this time. And then the living believers will join with them uh, to in the sky with Christ where we'll be with him forever. And uh, when that happens uh, in the sequence of events for the day... You know, the day of the Lord, it's a highly debated topic as well. So we don't know exactly when all of this is going to happen or what's going to happen around that time. But we do know that that is going to happen. And Paul taught this 
Uh, it seems like in detail based on what we have seen in his letters in 1 Thessalonians and now in 2 Thessalonians, uh, this was apparently a, a hot topic for them. Uh, and so uh, this was something that they were very interested in, but they have received a letter that was supposedly from Paul and his ministry team that stated that the day of the Lord had already arrived. So this would mean that they had missed the rapture of the church and that uh, really that they weren't believers to begin with because the believers were supposed to be with Jesus at this point. And so the Thessalonian believers are afraid. They don't know what's going on. And so they had reached out to Paul with the question. And in verses 1 to 12, Paul encouraged them not to be easily upset or troubled by false prophecies or fake letters. And he explains to them there in those verses that the day of the Lord will not come until the Antichrist comes. He's going to do some amazing signs and wonders. He's going to sit in God's temple and he's going to declare himself to be God. So he's saying, you don't have to worry about this until this has happened. If this hasn't happened yet, then you haven't missed anything. And in our, in our passage today, Paul is going to try to jump on that encouragement even further. Right? He's going to remind them who they are in Christ. He's going to remind them about the guarantees that that identity in Christ brings to them. And he's going to encourage them to cling to the traditions that they were taught. Right? So don't, don't worry about all this other stuff that comes up. If it is contradictory to what you have already been taught, it's not true. And so he's going to encourage them with that. Uh, and we're going to take a look at that, but I want to pray for our time together before we dive in. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that it can be trusted and that it provides everything that we need to know uh, for our salvation. It provides us everything that we need to know for how we should live our life uh, in accordance with your will. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who cling to the traditions that we see in this book, that we love it, that we want to bring you honor by, by obeying it. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be inclined towards that here today. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Paul says, But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. And hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who was loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. So nothing like having two back-to-back -back sermons. One is the Antichrist and the other is the doctrine of predestination. So always a good time in Thessalonians. Uh, but we see here, in verses 13 and 14, Paul says that he and his ministry companions should always give thanks to God for the brothers and sisters who are loved by the Lord in Thessalonica because they have been chosen by God for salvation. And he's saying to them that this is where you should find hope. Right? They have been chosen by God and that, that act of being chosen should bring them hope. Now, why would the idea of being chosen by God bring them hope? I'm glad you asked, because that's what I have next in my notes. He says there, well, he doesn't go into a lot of detail, uh, but what he's meaning here, I want to show you some passages that help to kind of open this up. We're going to open this up like a flower. 
right? Theologians have named the theological concept of being chosen by God as the doctrine of election. Or you may have heard it spoken of in terms of predestination. Right? We're going to see Paul mention that several times today. Uh, the idea is that those who have been saved or who will be saved in the future was predetermined before God laid the foundation of the earth. So before anything was ever made, God chose all who would believe. Paul's going to reference this first in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. So this is that 3 through 14 we're going to look at. Actually, 1 through 14. Paul there says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So here we see in verse 4, Paul tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him and being, uh, him being God. And in verse 11, we're promised an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of God who works everything out for the purpose of his will. So at our salvation, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit who is part of that inheritance. And this means that for those who have truly believed in Christ for their salvation, there is nothing that can take that away from us. All right, so we're locked in because the Holy Spirit has sealed us at that moment. And Paul is going to clarify for that, that for us. And I didn't actually mention that I did. Uh, Romans 8, we're going to be looking at 31 through 39. says, What then are we to say about these things if God is for us who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing, we have assurance that God is for us. 
Paul told us that God chose us before the world was created. And so there's nothing that anyone can do or anything can do. He said very specifically here, nothing that is created can remove us from his hand. And so what we see is that Paul's not sugarcoating the Christian life, right? There's nothing here that says anything about uh, peace, love, and prosperity. We have nothing about that here, right? There are no lies in this message saying that God loves you too much to let you suffer, right? If you, if, you know, sometimes you'll hear if you have enough faith, if you just believe hard enough, then you'll have health, you'll have wealth, you'll have happiness. And so any bad thing that happens to you is your fault because you don't have enough faith. That's simply not true. Paul was very clear that the life of the believer is hard and it's going to be filled with struggle. And Paul, he experienced this firsthand. I mean, he's got a, a long list of struggles that he went through throughout his time in, in ministry, and he's not going to lie to people about it. Right? He's not looking for likes. He's not looking for followers here. He is trying to be as plain as day, in his presentation of what the believer should expect. If you follow Jesus, you may experience persecution. If you follow Jesus, you may experience affliction or distress or famine or nakedness or the sword. Right? These things can take everything in this life away from us. But it can't take Jesus away. We may lose it all. But as believers in Christ, we will never lose Jesus and Paul says that makes you more than a conqueror. It makes you better than those who have everything in life, right, that they could have ever wanted. If they don't have Jesus, they have nothing. They have nothing that matters. Because as great as all the stuff in this world can be, Jesus is infinitely better. Infinitely better. And I'm sure that Paul taught this to the believers in Thessalonica. They faced severe persecution and this must have been some comfort to them. And they needed a reminder of their position in Christ to help bolster their faith. I know you're going through a difficult time, he says to them. I know you're struggling, but you've got to remember who you are in Christ. You are loved. You are chosen before the foundation of the world. And none of this can take you out of the love of Christ. None of this can take you out of his hand. Everything is still well within God's plan. Everything is still well within his ability to control it all. Right now, just as a side note here, the doctrine of predestination or election is often a hot topic. Right? It can elicit some very strong emotions for people because they don't like the implications. Right? And I, I'm not trying to shy away from any of the difficult stuff here. The implication is that when you choose something, when you actively choose something, you actively didn't choose something else, right? So if you go to the store and there's two bags of chips and you want one of them, then you actively choose that one and you didn't choose the other. And that's the difficulty that most people have with the doctrine of election, right? It brings the implication that not everyone has the free will to choose to come before Jesus, right? But we have to remember that Paul is not the only person in the New Testament that speaks to this, right? So it's broader than just one man's opinion, right? Even though that one man saw the risen Lord, went to the third heaven, and seems to have a pretty good prayer life. 
And so I think his communication with the Lord is pretty good. But I wanted us to look at a couple of other places to see what it says in the New Testament. Now, we're not going to read them all, but I do want to read a few of them from different people. So let's take a look at some of this. The first one I want to look at is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. Peter says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Continuing on in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 48, Luke tells us this regarding Paul and Barnabas' stop in Antioch. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts uh, to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of, the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. All, right, all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And then lastly... Here are a couple of quotes from the Gospel of John uh, directly from Christ. John 6, verses 37 to 44, says, Everyone the Father gives to me, uh, every, I'm sorry, everyone the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, John 15 Verses 12 to 19 says, This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command of you, love one another. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And so most people 
They get worked up about the doctrine of election because it, it, this means that it, it's keep, God is keeping people out of heaven, right? Because we hear this language of choosing, and again, actively choosing some means you're actively not choosing others. And they get this thought in their head that to be chosen means that there are other people that are banging on the door of heaven and God's saying, no, get away from me, right? You're not one of my people. Right? They're begging, God, please let me in. Please let me in. And that's not the case. In, in reality, the, the opposite is true. Right? If, if God did not first act on our heart, then no one would ever choose God. Right? It's not that unbelievers who aren't chosen can't come to God. It's that they won't. It's that they won't. The Bible says that before Christ changes our hearts... They're dead to spiritual things, right? It talks about us having a heart of stone. The Bible also says that we are slaves to our sin. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we are told that Satan blinds the eyes of the unbelieving so they can't see the truth. All right, so this means that we're incapable of seeing our sin for what it really is, right? We're incapable of overcoming our sin because we are slaves to it. Man, a dead heart doesn't move towards anything. Right, so it's not that we can't come to Jesus for salvation without God intervening on our behalf. It's that we will not. We can't see the truth. Right, the choice is there. Everyone that wants to come to Jesus can come. No one is left out. Right? When you hear people talk about, you know, Jesus came and died for the sins of the world. Everyone is included in the offer. But without the intervening work of the Holy Spirit on our heart, there's no chance that we will ever choose God. Coming to faith in Jesus requires the Holy Spirit to make our hearts come alive and for Him to remove the veil off of our eyes. And then when we see ourselves for who we truly are, and then we see God for who God truly is. Only then can we realize the heinousness of our sin and the righteousness of God. And only then will we make the choice to come to faith in Jesus. It's not can't, it's won't. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 30, the Lord says this to his people. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful. I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful so that you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of famine. So God saves you from your uncleanness. God switches out your heart. God puts in a new spirit, and that's the capital S, spirit. God is the one who helps us overcome our sin nature so that we can observe his statutes and so that we can carefully observe his ordinances. And as we do that, God promises that he will care for us. Now, that care might not look like what we want it to look like. Again, it's not health, wealth, and happiness. But it's kept close to him 
for all time in all things. And after encouraging the Thessalonians with this idea that they've been chosen by God, Paul then goes on to say that they will be sanctified through their belief in the truth. Right? So this will end up with them obtaining the glory of Jesus. Right? So salvation requires belief in the truth. It's not like we are uh, robots here. It's not like we automatically just do these things. We still have responsibility here. And it is, we have to believe the truth. And if we believe the truth, we have the promise that we will be sanctified by the Spirit. In verse 14, Paul tells them that God called them to salvation through the preaching and teaching of the good news of the gospel so that they would obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't love the fact that the Christian Standard Bible chose to put the word might here in this verse. If you read that, it says so that you might obtain this glory, right? Um, this gives the implication that it's a possibility, right? It's, that it's not guaranteed, but that's, uh, but that's not true. The ESV and the NASB get a little bit better, and they say may, so that you may. It's like you're allowed. You're allowed to get it. Uh, but I like the New Living Translations version the best uh, because they say can. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why I like that is because the calling of God for salvation is effectual, right? It's a guarantee. It's not something that's up in the air. It's going to fulfill its purpose, and that opens us up to the ability to share in the glory of Christ. Before, we're enemies of God, children of wrath, condemned where we stand. But when we come to faith in Jesus, we will share in the glory of Christ. I love in Romans 8, uh, verses 28 to 30, we see the progression of what happens in our life from the moment of uh, predestination to the moment of our glorification. Uh, if you're anywhere close to that, take a look at it and read it with me. Paul says there, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. So according to Paul, predestination again happens before the foundation of the world. The calling of those who believe happens at some point in their life. It's different for everyone. And those who are called are justified. Right, so this is a legal term that means not guilty. Right, we're all sinful. From birth, we have a sin nature. And so that means that from our very first moment of selfishness, from our very first uh, outburst of unrighteous anger, from the very first moment we tell our first lie or have our first covetous thought, right, for the first time that we lust after someone that's not our spouse, the first time that we steal something, the first time that we dishonor our parents, uh, from the first time that we put anything before God, we are deemed guilty by a holy and righteous God. If you didn't notice, that was the Ten Commandments. And when we break one of them, we've broken them all. That guilt that we are condemned with brings us separation from God. So from that moment... From your first sin, you are stamped with guilty. Jesus says this 
John 3.16, we're going to go all the way through 18, very familiar passage. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now, we're not waiting until death for our condemnation. If we are separated from God because of our sin, we stand condemned now. One heartbeat away from eternal condemnation. Jesus goes to the cross to die for our sins. He took our punishment. He took our condemnation so that there would be none left for those who repent of their sin and accept the gift of salvation that's offered to us. When we accept the gift of salvation, when we submit ourselves to the, uh, submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ, it's at that moment that Jesus' righteousness is applied to us. And this is what we present God with at the end of our lives or when Jesus returns. Right? It's not our righteousness. We don't have any. We don't have any. It's the righteousness of Christ. And when God sees the righteousness of Christ applied to us, he says, not guilty. That should excite you a little bit. If you have come to faith in Jesus, you stand in Jesus' righteousness. You are not condemned. You are not guilty. Romans says in, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 1 through 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is why Romans 8 is the best chapter in the Bible. In Christ, we are justified, not guilty. And then after this, Paul says that we are glorified, right? Now, notice that everything that Paul is saying here is in the past tense. You might be thinking this morning, I don't feel very glorious this morning, but you are glorified. Right? I, don't, I didn't feel very glorious yesterday, and I probably won't tomorrow. If I'm glorified, what's the deal? Well, if you're a believer in Christ, you live in what theologians call the already but not yet. Right? This means that when you put your faith in Christ, you are glorified. Boom. Done. You're justified. You're glorified. You receive Christ's glory. It's a done deal. But you don't come into the glory immediately. Right? It's like a weird inheritance. Right? Jesus died and rose again to offer this up to us as an inheritance. And so when we come as part of the family of God for in our salvation, you know, we get this inheritance applied to us, but it's put into a trust. Right? So we don't get it directly. You don't receive it fully until you die or until Christ returns, whichever comes first. The promise is there, and it's sure. You're going to receive it. You will receive the glory of Christ. And based on this encouragement, Paul now wants the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions that they were taught. You know, Paul's saying, you're locked in. I know it's hard. I know life is difficult. But you were chosen 
before the foundation of the world. You were chosen before sin entered the world. You were chosen before all this difficulty was ever even a glimmer in someone else's eye. You were locked in. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. There's nothing in this life that can remove you from God's hand or His heart. You will be sanctified. You will be glorified. So stop worrying so much. It's in past tense for a reason. It's locked in. Hold tight to what you've been taught and live a life that reflects your belief of the truth. The truth doesn't change. It never will. If you get another bogus letter from us, you know, just disregard it because the truth doesn't change. What we told you before is solid for eternity. It will not change. If you hear a conflicting message from someone claiming to speak for God, God, disregard it because it's not true. The truth doesn't change. And so he wants them to be encouraged by the Lord. And he wants them to get to the work that he has put before them. You are locked in. The difficulties of this life are hard, no doubt. But it can't change your status before the Lord. So, a couple of questions and applications here. As I said, all are invited to come before the Lord in salvation. The doctrine of predestination, again, is not about God keeping people out. It's about how God gets anyone in. It explains how people come to faith in Jesus. It explains how it's possible to hold the idea of once saved, always saved. Right? From the free will perspective, if you picked it up, then you can put it down whenever you want. So the idea of once saved, always saved doesn't make sense if we believe in free will being the only way that we come to faith. Right? And so, listen, if you're here this morning and you just can't wrap your head around this, don't, don't worry about it. Right? Predestination is not a primary issue in Christian theology. Right, the primary issues are things like the Trinitarian nature of God. Right, the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was not a created being, that he's eternal just like the Father, that he died on the cross and took the wrath of God on our behalf, that he rose again on the third day. We must believe these things to be Christians. They're primary to the faith. And so what is primary about uh, to the faith about the debate about free will versus predestination, what's primary is that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the invitation to accept that gift is offered to everyone, period. Do you know what changes about the mission of God, whether it's free will or predestination? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Our job is to take the message, and then we get to leave the results up to the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. I don't want the weight of that on my shoulders. Can you imagine if you had to present the gospel perfectly every single time for someone to come to faith? No. I don't want that. I don't want that burden. And God has taken that burden away from us. We present the truth. The Holy Spirit does his job. And then we just continue on with the mission to make disciples of all nations and to teach people how to be mature and ministering worshipers of God. And that invitation is extended to every single person here today. Right? If you're not a believer in Jesus, 
If you've never repented of your sin and accepted the salvation that is offered to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what's stopping you from doing that this morning? Like, I pray that the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the truth. I pray that you would not leave this place still condemned, still facing an eternity separated from God. The invitation for that to completely change is offered to you here today, and I pray that you will accept it before you leave here today. The second thing I wanted to put out there is uh, a reminder that we need to cling to the Scriptures. All right, what Paul offers here is, this is what he's talking about when he's talking about the tradition. The tradition that they have been taught. The truth is what he's referring to here. And the truth doesn't change over time. It's something that is foundationally true, and it can't be altered just because 2,000 years have passed. Right does not become wrong simply because of the passage of time. Wrong does not become right simply because society has changed their opinion about something. And if we want to know what is right and what is wrong, then we go to the Word of God. We cling to what we find there. And this has always been my challenge. Now, in case you can't tell, I lean into predestination. That's how I, I see people being saved. That's what I see in Scripture. But if you are free will, hardcore, all the way, great. As long as you're sharing your faith with people. And as long as you can back that up with Scripture. Right? If you are free will because that makes you feel icky about God, like who cares? Who cares about how you feel about God? Right? If you can back up your belief with Scripture, more power to you. If it were cut and dry and very clear, we wouldn't be debating about it for thousands of years. But you need to know your Bible. You need to be able to back that up because you saying that, well, that just doesn't make me feel good about God, it doesn't mean anything. Right? So if you can back up what you believe with, with Scripture and you're on mission, more power to you. Free will it up. Right? But just be in the Word. Cling to the Word. Don't let your heart, don't let society, don't let anything else form your opinion on who God is or what the kingdom of God is about. Cling to the tradition that we have in the Word. And lastly, do you need encouragement? I mean, I would think that some of us have got to need some encouragement here this morning. Paul is pouring himself out trying to encourage the Thessalonians because they're having a tough time. They're struggling. So what does Paul do? He points them back to Jesus, points them to the Scripture, and he prays for them. And that's what I want to offer to do for you. We have a prayer meeting tonight. The whole purpose of that prayer meeting is praying for the health of this church. And I'm not talking about your knee, your hip, whatever. I'm talking about your heart, your soul. We'll pray for knee, hip as well. But I want to pray for where you are with Jesus right now. We generally spend a few minutes in prayer over each issue that we have. And then I will either pray to close that out or someone else will volunteer to do it for you. Okay? But if you have something going on in your life right now, you feel far from God, you need some prayer, come and pray. Let us pray for you. We cannot call ourselves a God-honoring church and not be a church of prayer. Those two are contradictions. They don't match up. 
So I challenge you. And if that stung a little bit, good. I hope it did. I love you enough to sting you every now and then. We need to come together and pray. So come out, pick up some sticks, and then let's pray together when we're done. All right? So I'm going to close this out with a word of prayer. And I, I, I hope that we'll see you this evening. Let's pray together. Father, it is my desire to know you more and more. And I pray that that desire pervades this church. I pray that we would lean into what we find in Scripture, that we would cling to you, that we would cling to what we find there. We wouldn't let the, the wishy-washy roller coaster nature of, of society uh, determine what is true. I pray that we wouldn't let our wishy-washy roller coaster emotions determine what is true. I pray that we would dive deeply into your word, that we would realize that this will never fail us. It will never change. And Lord, if we hear people that are speaking untruths, I pray that we are so saturated with the word that we hear it, we understand it to be false, and we disregard it. Or if need be, we, we battle back. But we got to be people of the word for that to happen. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would put that into our heart. I pray that the Holy Spirit would put the desire to be people of prayer in our heart. So that we can encourage one another as, as we're struggling. The way that Paul encouraged the Thessalonians. And I pray that we would be growing more and more in, in our maturity. And that we would uh, be better believers for it. That we would bring you honor and glory in all that we do. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.